welcome to the City View Church podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. When was the last time you actually sat, actually sat, paused long enough to think about the love Jesus has for you? I don't, I don't want you to feel guilt regarding that, but I want you to think, when, when was the last time? Because for me, as I thought about that question to myself, I thought, it's been a long time. Now, do I think about Jesus' love? Do I talk about Jesus' love? Oh, I do. I mean, I preach on it every Sunday. But there's a difference than just having a passing thought and actually pausing and thinking. It's like, you know, that moment when you're going to eat something and then you take that bite and it was so good, you stop and you savor it. I smoked ribs yesterday. Six racks of them. I tried a couple different marin- different seasonings, <clears throat> all dry rub. And my son goes, Dad, my youngest son goes, Dad, that was a good bite. And you could just tell at that moment he paused and he savored it. And I said, what was wrong with all the other bites? <laughs> he goes, no, Dad, it all was good, but that one was extra good. When was the last time we paused and savored the love of God? We just thought about it and, and allowed it to just sort of overflow us. And what did we think about it? Some of us, maybe we just haven't sat long enough to think, been too busy. Others, maybe we haven't experienced the love of God yet. I just want to tell you today that as we dive into the next part of Second Corinthians chapter 5, that we're going to pause for a moment and we're going, I'm going to read through a section and I want us to soak in and realize how much God loves you. You may not feel like you deserve his love. You may feel like, man, there's no way God could really love me. You may be thinking right now of things that you've done, you've done in the past, you've done hours ago, and think, how could God love me? I don't know how he can, but the only reason he can is because of what Jesus Christ did. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, it allows the love of God to infiltrate your life. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, your love is so good and it's so gracious and it's so kind to us. And God, I ask this morning as we get into your word, as we study your book, I pray and I ask that your love would overwhelm us today. God, that we would leave in wonder of it. God, not just us, but churches all over the valley. Lord, I think of Christ's kingdom church meeting on our campus in just a few hours. Bless them. Lord, I think of um, valley life and bless them. Lord, I think of cross church. Lord, bless them. I think of relentless. Bless them. Lord, I ask that you'd bless us here at City View. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you have a Bible, please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, picking it up in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can scan that QR code, and it's going to take you to the YouVersion Bible app. 
You could follow along there. You could read it behind me. My preference, which, would you rather know my preference or me never tell you? I'm going to tell you because I really don't care. My preference is that you would have a paper Bible and that you would follow along in a paper Bible because there's just something about it. I don't know what it is. I love to get up in the morning and hold my Bible and read it. It's not that my Bible, I worship it, but like I have notes written, verse 14, right on top of it. If you can see that far, you probably can't. But right here it says, Jeremiah, what controls you? So first, Second Corinthians, if you're in first, you're, in, you're wrong. I was just trying to mess with you. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. And I want you to, as I read, I want you to, to think and look at, now this is, this is some basic Bible study methods. I want you to look and think and see how many places you see the, the love of God in these few verses. And if you see it, if you see a verse that like, okay, this is God's love to me, underline it, okay? Or write it on a piece of paper if you don't have something, okay? I'm gonna read it. You read along if you want or whatever you wanna do, but think, okay, where's God's love? Right here, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls me. I mean, right, that's easy. You write, underline that one. It's a give me. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, meaning Jesus, died for all, so that they, would that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again from the death from, on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not continuing, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we close these seven verses, the, these seven verses are, as Paul says in verse one, for the love of Christ controls me, for the love of Christ consumes me, for the love of Christ compels me, for the love of Christ is my aim. This love of Christ that we see in these seven verses here are Paul's aim. And what do we learn about the love of Christ here? I'm going to highlight for you, and maybe you saw something different than I did, but I'm going to bring to light a few things that I saw regarding the love of Christ in these few verses. Number, the first thing I saw is found there, right there in verse, I didn't put it, it's not behind me. They're probably all going to be behind me, and just, they are already there. Perfect. First one is, for the love of Christ controls me. It just says that God loves you, Christ loves you, but let's dive in. One, how did he show he loves us? 
he died for us. Which says that in verses 14 through 16. How do we see that Christ loves us? He rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He conquered death. How do we see that he loves us? That you are a new creation in Christ. You're new. We're going to dive into that. But he's made you new. Not the old you that you remember. He doesn't look at you that way. He sees you new now. That God reconciles us to himself, meaning he makes us right with him. That God has forgiven you. That God wants to work through you. That Jesus took your sin. And that Jesus gave you his righteousness. Those are just a few things that I saw in those seven verses that speak of God's love for you and for me. A love that went beyond it had anything it had to, that, that God's love for us was so deep. So now let's dive into the rest of this chapter. Seeing how much Jesus loves us, seeing to what lengths Jesus went, Paul then dives into verses 15 through 21, and he says, this love of Christ compels me, drives me, gives me my aim, gives me my focus, helps me know what to do with my life. For the love of Christ is my aim. And here is what Paul tells us that he does because of it. This In verses 15 through 21, this Paul now defines for us, he says, because Christ loves me so much, this is what I do. This is how I live. This is, these are the action points to a life that is so wrapped up in a love of Jesus, realizing and understanding how much. And so let's go into verses 15 and 16 now. Paul says, And he, Jesus, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, recognizing no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Living for ourselves is what got us into this trouble. I um, listened to this podcast this other day, and it's, it's this lady who, she runs this ministry that, um, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to dive into all of it. But the person said, you've been told in the church, it's this person who's very much against the church, very much against God's love, very much against what God has said in his word. You've been told in the church that you're not enough. You've been told in the church that, that, you are, that, you are, that you are sinful. That you've been told in the church that you can't do it on your own. You've been told in the church that you need forgiveness. You've been told in the church that you need all this. But I'm here to tell you that you are enough. That you are good enough. That you are all this. And I'm like, my goodness. If this is the lie that we're telling people, at some point in life, we get to a point where we realize whether you believe in Jesus or not, you get to a point where you go, I am terrible and I need somebody. 
Everybody gets to that point at some place in their life where they realize, and I mean, I've got friends right here, where, I mean, I've, I got to be a huge part in their life where I, I know their story, where they got to that point. They tried to live their own life on their own, doing their own, and then one day they realize, no, it's not enough. And I'm listening to this going, man, is that, that what we get? And Paul here says, no, Jesus died for us because we weren't enough. He said, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for other people. We live that others might see Jesus. That's the goal. And so as Paul says, the love of Christ, it consumes me. It compels me. It gives me my aim. And and this is what Paul said. The love of Christ gives him his aim. aim. He says, no longer living for myself. But I live for others. It was this idea of living for self that got Adam and Eve in trouble. This word live in verse 15, this word no longer living for yourself, it's a verb, and it speaks of a course of life, conduct, or character. It says my my conduct, the, the course of my life, my character is no longer for myself, but it's now for others, it's for the Lord, because he's my aim. So when we allow the love of Christ to be our aim, it changes how we live. No longer for ourselves, it changes how we see people, Paul says. He says in verse 16, Therefore from now on we recognize them no longer according to the flesh, no longer just as these these people that, that are just human beings living, but I realize that they're eternal beings that need a Savior. He goes, I, 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 to Jesus, to me, before Jesus changed my life, was just a man. But now Jesus is my Savior. And because I see Jesus as his change in who he is, now it changes how I see every person. And because of this, because the love of Christ consumes him, because of how Paul now sees people and sees life and realizes that Jesus died and took his place, Paul says this in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He sees that those who are in Christ are new. That's how Paul sees people now, that they're new. When they put their faith in Jesus Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? Does it mean just to go to church? No. Does it mean just to watch service at some point in time? No. Does it mean to own a Bible? Does it mean your parents were godly people? No. To be in Christ is very significant. It's speaking of a very specific way of how a person lives and how they are as a being. To be in Christ means that a believer or a person walks and lives Christ, a way way like Christ, day by day. You're living more and more like Jesus. It means that we don't live according to our fleshly desires, but according to his spirit. It means our desires are changing to be in Christ. Does it mean you're perfect? No, we all are a hot mess. But our desires are changing. It means saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. When you're in Christ, he gives you the power to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. There's a supernatural power in Christ. It's like being plugged in to the power source. 
A person who's in Christ is showing the fruits of the Spirit, which are found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, fruit, the fruits of the Spirit. So it's not like you start growing things on you, but you start living a different way. So the fruits of the Spirit that you will start showing, a life that's in Christ, sort of like a tree planted in the ground should start bearing fruit. A tree planted, it grows, it is green, If it's a fruit tree, it bears fruit. Like that's the evidence of a tree in the ground, right? A tree not in the ground is dead. That's it. It's just dead. A tree in the ground is green, it grows, and it produces whatever it's supposed to produce. Seeds, fruit, whatever it is. So the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There's probably a children's song about it. I don't know it, but that's, that's what should be starting seen in your life. You're like, all at once, Pastor? Well, no. You'll get more loving, more patient, all the other ones. They start becoming evidences in your life when you are in Christ. It means that we abide. That means we stay connected to Jesus. So Paul says, anyone in Christ is a new creation. You're new. The old you, he says, is dead. But the old, the old us loves to haunt us. Loves to remind us of our past. Loves to remind us of our past that happened yesterday or five minutes before you got to church and you yelled at your kids because they were all being annoying because they do that. The old you loves to say, you're not worthy, you're not deserving. You, Why in the world would Jesus ever, ever love you? And you just remind and say, I agree, I don't deserve it, but he still does. And he forgives me. Paul says, you are a new creation. You're a new creature. In Christ, it says, new things come. We are made new. In that very moment, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are new. The old you dies in, a, in an instant, in, the, in, the, in a matter of milliseconds. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are a brand new creation. That's what it says right there. You are brand new in that moment. But it also says that you are being made new, meaning it's also a process. Not only are you made new in the moment, that's what this word, this, this idea here is saying. Not only are you made new in the moment, but you are also, as it says there in verse 17, it says, therefore in Christ you are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Meaning it's this idea of you are becoming. It's like a plant. A plant, once you plant it and you put it into the ground, it is becoming what it is supposed to be. It's growing. And so when you are a new person in Christ, you are made new in the moment, but you're becoming the new person as you live. It's a process. Some of us, we get so frustrated with the process because we compare ourselves to other people. 
Imagine if the oak tree compared himself to the orange tree and said, why don't I bear fruit like the orange tree? And the orange tree looks at the oak tree and says, why am I not as strong as the oak tree? Well, because the orange tree is meant to be an orange tree to produce oranges. The oak tree is meant to be an oak tree to grow big and strong and do whatever oak trees are supposed to do. House squirrels and stuff. You would never build a house out of orange tree trunks. But you'd build a house, I think, out of an oak tree. You'd smoke oak wood like on a smoker. You wouldn't smoke orange tree wood. But that's what we do in our Christian life is we compare, but Jesus is speaking specifically to us. He says, you are new, and you are becoming new, and you're a new creation. It's a process, and it takes time. That's all part of City View Church. We're part of our mission is we want to help you belong in community, believe in Jesus, but we want to help you become who God is calling you to be. And that becoming for each one of us is at your pace, is at the pace that you, some of us, we slow down that pace. Any of you ever be around somebody who purposefully doesn't do all their homework, purposefully doesn't do all their practicing, purposefully doesn't do any extra work, and so they get frustrated, like, why don't I start? Why don't I have more playtime? Why don't I get this? I'm going to relay everything to sports because that's what I identify. Not that I'm an athlete. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I'm not, but my kids are, or at least two of them are. Um, no, my youngest, he's, he's going to be on a, he, he wants to, he's getting ready to play a sport. So they're all athletes. But that's just how I see. But you ever see those people who just don't put the time in? And they get frustrated that they always lose? They get frustrated that they always don't do better? We do the same thing in our Christian faith. And then what, the first thing we do is we give up on our Christian faith. We give up on church. Right? We stop going, well, it's not changing me. They'd be like getting mad at the ice cream for making me fat. God, I'm on a diet. Yeah, you keep eating ice cream. It's called your ice cream diet. But this process of becoming, there's a whole part that says you've got to put it down. The old you is dead, but we love to resurrect him. Leave him dead. The new you is dead a process of you becoming who God is calling you to be. And then Paul says in verse 18, now all these things are from God. All these things. What's he talking about? All these things. All what things? The things that he just said. The things that he just said that that the, the love of Christ consumes me. All these things. That Christ's love is from God. That Jesus died for you. That's from God. That Jesus rose from the dead, that's from God. That you are a new creation, that's from God. That the old you is dead, that's from God. That's what he's saying. So all these things are from God. He's referring to what he just said. And then he says this about who God is. All these things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespass, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were not as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In these three verses, the word reconcile is stated in some form five different ways. That means it's a point that Paul is trying to get across. He's wanting us to understand this relationship that he has with God and this relationship that we have with God when we put our faith in Jesus. He wants us to understand at what lengths Jesus and God went to make things right with us and God. He wants us to understand how much God loves you. And so he uses this term reconcile, which means to restore a relationship. It means to change somebody from enemy to friend. That's what that word reconcile means. And this is what God does with us. When we put our faith in Jesus, he reconciles, he makes us right. He takes all of us who were enemies. And we're going to dive into that in a little bit. Some of you are like, I was never God's enemy. We're going to dive into that. All of us who were his enemy... And God says, and I want to be your friend. Now, all religions try to say, okay, you need to make things right with God. All religions. And, I, you know, and I know you probably have heard this. Well, like Catholics, like they have to work their way into heaven. Yep, that's what, that's what the Bible says. That's what they say. That the only way you can really get the approval by God is you've got to do all these things. You've got to make sure you do all this. It's, 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 it's built in. You've got, you got Mormons where they are the same way. They've got, got to work their way. They've got to do certain things. There are certain ways that they have to do things. They, they've got, they get hounded for, for tithing. Like if you don't give a certain percent, you can get exiled from the church and all that. And you, I don't do that to you guys um, yet. I'm just kidding. I would, never, I would never do that. And then you go, you go to other countries. You get outside of America. Go to India, where they have thousands of gods. You can actually go and watch them worship gods. They go, one day I was in India, we were at in um, this, this part of India called um, Varanasi. Varanasi is, there's the, the river there. It's, it's like one of the most holy rivers in all of the world. It's the most holy, I believe it's actually the most holy river in the entire world, according to them. And that river, you, if you die, you, you get burned and then you're thrown in. And according to them, if your wife wants to get into the next level of living, that she also has to die with you. But she's not dead yet. Her body was thrown onto the body of her dead husband, and then she'd be burned alive. If you, are, um, you have gods and you have to go, and according to how much you do and how good you do, you take a god and you throw it into the river, and the god floats or goes somewhere down the river, and you feed the god. You don't eat cows, so you got people starving everywhere, but you see cows walking down the street in galore. You watch people rub themselves in cow poop, cow pee, because they just want the, to be pleasing to their god. You go to other countries, you see that, that this idea of trying to make yourself, reconciling yourself to God, you do all the work. You go to Thailand, go to any Asian country. I, I've been there. I've seen where the people live in such fear. My, my mechanic, he, he so wants to make sure that his shop is blessed, and so he feeds his God every single day. 
Because they want to make the relationship right. Because according to them, according to their religion, they want to make things right. And that's what we try to do as even Christian Americans. We want to make sure that we hold up our end of the deal. So we come in with our faith. We're like, okay, God, Jesus, I believe you. But then we put this guilt on ourselves. Like we've got to make sure that we hold up our end of the bargain. That God's love is dependent upon whether or not we are good enough that day. God's love does not change according to how you are. But when you live in sin, it does put up blocks. When you live in active sin, it's hard for you to receive that love. His love doesn't stop, but you block it. And so Paul, as he's talking about this redemption of God's love, redemption for in in the Christian faith, redemption only works one way. God redeeming man, not man redeeming themselves to God. And this has been God's plan from the beginning to redeem man. Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 through 9 says this. Adam and Eve, to give you a little background, Adam and Eve had just sinned. They just ate from the fruit. God had said, don't do this, and they did it. And they feel guilty. They feel trapped. They feel ashamed. And God comes down to earth. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God, starting his plan of redemption, of reconciliation, pursued them. It says, and then the Lord God called to man, and he said, where are you desiring relationship?" He did not come in condemnation. He came desiring to mend, to make things right again. And so from that point on, God set out and he made a plan to redeem man, to reconcile us back to himself. That was God's plan. You will not find that in any other religion. Every other religion is us getting up to God. Christianity is the only one God coming down to us. And then as Adam and Eve hid, God said, where are you? And then from that point on, he lays out this plan and he tells the serpent who led the woman into sin. He says, you may sting my son's heel. You may hurt my son. That might happen. That will happen. He says, but my son will destroy you. And he will bring salvation to all who believe. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And then God sets out this plan of reconciling man, as we see in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to, the word, to us all the word of reconciliation. It was through Christ that he committed. It was through Christ that God made this plan. And it says, reconciling the world world to himself, not counting their trespasses. 
You see, people might think, I'm good enough. God, am I really that bad? I'm not as bad as the guys, the Hamas, God. I'm not as bad as them. I'm not that bad, God. I'm not as bad as like a rapist, God. I'm not as bad as a, a murderer, God. I'm not as bad as this. And we can look and put ourselves like, like God has this ranking level of like who's bad. He goes, okay, who are you comparing yourself to? Are you comparing yourself to me, perfect, or are you comparing yourself to a broken person already, saying, well, God, I'm not as broken as them. He goes, well, okay, you're nowhere near as good as I am because the criteria is to be as good as me, not as bad as them. The Bible says this about us being sinners, but in Isaiah 59, but your iniquity have made, have, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. That's what your sins do. It separates you. Romans 3, 10 through 11, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were dead. You're not good, no, not one. And as it said there in Isaiah, your iniquities have separated you. There is a separation because of sin. The moment you sin, the very first time, the moment you're born, you're born into it. You inherit it from your parents. Your parents, that was the first thing they give you when you are born. The first thing they hand you as a baby. The moment you come out of your mother, you are given a sinful nature. The moment you're born. It doesn't happen over time when you become three and you're stubborn and you're nasty. It's not when you're three. It's not when you're five when you learn to tell your first lie. It's not when you're seven when you learn to hit your little sister. It's not at that point. It's the moment you're born, you are sinful. That's just how it is. And you're like, that's not true. Just watch a child. You, I've not seen a parent teach their kid how to sin. Never. You don't have to. They just do it. They just, they, they know how they whine the moment they're born, and they're selfish. They want food at that moment. Now, yes, that's their only way of communicating it because at six months old, they don't know how to say food, milk. But in that transgression, in that sinful place that Paul says there in verse 19, it was while we were broken and at a sinful state that Jesus died for you. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, I think says it in some of the most beautiful words. For while you were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him for if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled, made right with God through not your deeds, because when it's dependent on your deeds to get into heaven, guess what happens when you make a mistake? It's dependent upon you making it right again. 
When it's dependent upon you to be good enough, it's also dependent upon you when you're bad enough. When, when you've made plenty of mistakes, God can't say, I can't forgive you because you've got to figure of yourself. But when you put your faith in Jesus, you see, Jesus, you know what? You died for me. Everything changes. God is not counting your trespasses against you. That's what it says in verse 19. God's not counting them. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are reconciled with God, made right. And Paul then says in verse 20, he says, therefore, because of Christ's love, therefore, because Jesus died on a cross, therefore, because Jesus rose again, therefore, because I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, therefore, because I am forgiven, therefore, because he's reconciled me and made things right between me and God, therefore, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, as though God were begging through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul says, because of all these things that Christ has done, because of all this, I am an ambassador. I am a sent out one. An ambassador in those days, they were a messenger, a representative, a king or a ruler. They were sent to a different country, a different region. We are not from this world again anymore. The moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are residents of heaven. We are aliens of earth. So many of us, we fight for earth. We fight because we think this is it. This is my home. This is my residence. I'm going to do this. I'm an American. All these things. And I, I, you know, there, are, there are things to be proud of. But many of us, we are not proud of our residence in heaven. We live as if that's some distant way of living. But that's not it. That's the way we are to live now. We're to live as residents, as ambassadors. And Paul says, for the love of Christ is my aim. I am an ambassador of Jesus. And as God is speaking through me, he has given me a word and he has made me a messenger of reconciliation that I am to share with all people. Every time we have those football kids in that room, every Tuesday, I make it a point to talk to them. There was a kid two weeks ago, he was failing uh, English or math. And so I prayed for him in front of everybody. And I said, hey, where's that kid that was failing? And they go, oh, he's not here yet. I'm like, all right. So I go up to him as he's in line to get food. I go, hey, I heard you're passing. I heard you got to play. He goes, yeah. I go, you know why? He goes, why? I go, it's because I prayed and because God did it. Because I want him to know that there's a God that so passionately loves him. What's your message? What's your word? What are you pleading, begging, pursuing people with? Has God's love so overwhelmed you, or is it like, eh, that was a decent bite? Like when my kid said, Dad, that was a good bite. And I'm like, what about the rest of them? Are we like God's love? Like, eh, that's just food. Or is it so overwhelming that God went to such lengths 
to pursue relationship again because he desires to have a relationship like he had with Adam and Eve where they could walk in the garden and be together, where God came down from heaven pursuing Adam and Eve, walking in the garden saying, where are you? Not where are you, like where are you? You know that, you know that voice that you hear if you're a parent and you're wondering where your kids are and you're like, where are you? Judah Semler or Joel Emanuel Semler, where are you? Get down here right now. That's not what God's saying there. God's not like, Adam, man, whatever is less than a human being, where are you? No, he's walking in the midst of the morning or day, and he says, where are you? Because he knew they were stuck in their sin, and he said, from this day forward, I'm going to pursue reconciliation.